what yeah. you talked about yeah. is I got my finance friends on. We talked about money. Yep. You're my music friend. All right, there we go. my quality on your end you're good man you're five by five uh i have no idea what that means but uh happy that i'm that way <laughs> <laughs> this is my first test of my new little uh closet studio here my office space so sounds good you're my guinea pig all right i like it nice it's very dark in here i have yet to put a light in here so i literally am just sitting in a darkened cave by myself How'd you set up your space? Um, well, you know, I've got outside of the fact that, you know, the door is shut and um, I've got a packing packing blanket hanging over the ceiling that sort of tents down closer to me because the closet's pretty tall. And then the walls are all covered with uh, acoustic foam. So that's uh, the that, general. Uh, you do that egg crate stuff? Yeah. Well, this is like, it's, it's like, yeah, essentially it's egg crate stuff, but it's like, it's not the shape of the designs are a little bit more hip. <laughs> so I got some stuff here. It looks like, uh, spikes and they're interlocking spikes. So the challenge, <laughs> the challenge is echo bouncing, right? You want to make yeah. sure that you're not getting anything bouncing around. No, I know this space is really, really small. So there's not really much place for the echo to go to begin with. How big are you thinking? It's got to be enough for you and instruments, right? No, no, no. Just me. I don't wait. We, if we record instruments, we're probably going to record it in a more open room because we want that sort of bleedy echo stuff. Our whole last album that we recorded in a living room with like no sound treatment whatsoever. I think the best we had were a couple of like, you know, acoustical boards that were that were homemade uh, that are, the buddy of ours who recorded it. Um, they were like stuffed with old pairs of jeans that he got from Goodwill. Yeah. 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 So we had like four panels of that just set up in strategic places in front of a couple of windows, but he had this huge, it was like a, like, you know, 20 foot by 15 foot living room that we were recording most of our shit in. Um, and, uh, so not, not even a studio at all. How many pieces you guys got? Just you and the wife or just me and the wife, man. Just the two of us, right. at least on the last album, uh, the most recent album. That's what we had album before that. When you're still trying to figure out what kind of band we wanted to be, we brought a bunch of musicians in to, to, uh, record with us. Okay. Well, that's cool. So what's up, man? How you doing? I'm doing all right. Tell me, tell me how this, this thing goes. Everybody should have a drink. Uh, yes. It doesn't have to be alcohol. Like my, my brother-in-law is Diet Coke. That's his yeah. thing. Wherever he goes, he orders a Diet Coke. Okay. Uh, I was kind of obsessed with the idea of having a drink in my 20s. Uh, <laughs> Weren't we all? <laughs> I just like, you know, what's, what's, you know, you know. Didn't you have Tallboy Tuesdays in college? I did. I did. I remember there, Tallboy Tuesdays. I, were, I, attend, uh, I attended a few Tallboy Tuesdays. There were a variety of... <laughs> you know, different beers that we would try like uh my old roommate uh who i've also had on the podcast he's up to a thousand in his drinking app oh that uh untapped app yeah he's i may, might be untapped but he's he's just trying all kinds of different ones and he's got like a 45 percent success rate he's like all of them suck he says <laughs> so I, I try them i click it on the app and then i throw it away he says because it's just awful 
<laughs> I wouldn't even deign to call it piss. It's worse than that. But I, I love the idea of, we used to go to Vegas a lot with one of my buddies from high school. His dad was a high roller over there and we would just go okay. and bleed his comps as you know, 20 somethings do. Right. And whenever the, whenever the girl with the cigarette tray would come by, because we used to just watch him play blackjack. She'd come by and she'd go, what do you want to get? And I thought to myself, what's, what's my drink? What, what speaks to me? And I went through a ton of them. Uh, but oh, I thought yeah. that's, that's a fun way to, that's a fun way to get to know people because what I think they like to drink says something about them. Do you, do you like to do shots? Do you like to do a specific kind of a drink? Does that drink have cultural overtones? Does it remind you of a story? Um, do you shy away from drinking for specific reasons? Do you not like it? Huh. Uh, as I talk to younger people, I know like kids that are now in their twenties, cause we're old men. We are now don't want to get drunk. They want to do these virgin cocktails, which to me is like decaf coffee. It's an oxymoron, but yeah. <laughs> you have, you have like these virgin parties where kids will come and they'll do mixed drinks. So effectively a oh, Shirley yeah. Temple is a, is a dinner drink. Well, yeah. Okay. Whatever floats your boat. Yeah. And then business has always been a hobby of mine. I remember we were in the car one time with Donlin going to that hike we took to that gigantic rock. Yeah. There's the four of okay. us in Donlin's car. And Maddie said, what do you think we're going to be doing in 10 years? And Donlin said, I don't know. You're going to be doing whatever you want. You know, typical Donlin answer, you know, Matt pressed and he went, all right. Cause Donlin was like that, you know, you poke him and he growls and then you poke him again. He's like, all right. It's kind of how Favreau describes working with Harrison Ford. You know, he's grumpy until you kind of push him a little bit. And then he opens up and he tells really funny stories. So right. I always liken him to, to that experience. And he said, what do you think we're going to be doing in 10 years? And uh, he said, well, you'll be acting. And you know, and Matt said, what do you mean? He says, well, I don't know what you're going to be doing. He says, but you'll be acting. He says, well, you'll find something. And then he said, pointed to me and, and he said, I think you'll be in business. <laughs> I said, okay. Said, you, don't, you don't think I'm going to, you don't think I'm going to pursue this? He says, oh no, there is acting in business. He says, don't get me wrong. He said, but you don't strike me as, you don't strike me as the type of performer that would go into the traditional outlets. He says, so your, your training will take you in that direction. He says, and I think you'll be very successful, but I see you as a business actor, whereas, you know, Maddie does commercials and, and plays and all kinds of stuff. And then, <laughs> uh, but that was, so that was the other impetus of is let's, let's talk about what it means to do something for money, even if it's nonprofit, yeah. uh, which we'll, we'll get to as the kind of crux of what I wanted to talk to you about. And then the third one is I got kids, so I'm yeah. not out partying and doing stuff. I'm not out taking snowboarding trips. I'm not out doing all these things because I have responsibilities. And so as we look at what that does that affects you, it's what do you drink? What do you do? What's, what do you do with what's left of your time? So I got, uh, I got about 12 or 13 episodes in the can nice. and you know, the topics move around. So well, tell me, tell me about the world of music. If you can put a business spin on it, that'd be cool. Cause that's on brand. But in general, this is something that we've never really talked about, although I've been fascinated. Um, I used to watch you with Stir Fry. Uh, and I know Wait, you've got... Are we, are we officially recording now? <laughs> uh, we are. No, no, no. Uh, please talk, talk about Stir Fry. I mean, it's, it's, uh, randomly enough, it's popped up live, recently. I mean, this, but I remember, I I remember to open seeing my you beer. in Stir Fry. I remember it was a, it was a pretty big set. You had... Uh, <laughs> At least six people, right? It was it was a traditional ska band. 
Yeah, I mean, I think at our at our biggest, we had we had a three piece horn section, and then yeah, at the most we had seven, uh, and then our trombone player somewhere in our sophomore year just like disappeared off the face of the earth. Really fantastic guy. He just left and everyone was like, what happened to Sean? And like, <laughs> uh, uh, like what, what are we now? Like almost 20 years later, yeah. um, he shows up on Facebook, you know, and the whole band is like, holy shit, there you are. How you been? You know? Uh, but yeah, uh, seven, we, we had seven at our, at our largest, but for the most part it was six. Now the process of a band is, it's kind of a job without being a job, right? You're there because you love it, but you got to recruit members. You got to hold auditions. What, what's the process of band formation? Cause I know you've done it more than once. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think, I, I think I've done it in, in a way that is different than some of the other people that I've heard that I hear, because like the first one, you know, with stir fry, I just found people in, in my dorm, you know, like I knew, uh, I went to a music school, like an after school music school sort of thing um, with a girl who played, who ended up playing guitar in, in the band. And we were in a couple cover bands that that school put together and we go and play at like, you know, county fairs and things like that. And then we ended up both going to UC Santa Barbara. We were both in uh, Francisco Torres together. So I contacted her and I was like, Hey, let's, uh, you know, this was back in like the, we started school in 98. So the, the third coming of ska punk was a thing. And everyone was like, this is going to be the new wave of music. And then it died two years late, two years later. <laughs> You're <laughs> so, talking about the post Brian Setzer era. I, well, yeah. Well, I guess. Uh, so we, I mean, there's more that like real big fish less than Jake were actually on, you know, yep. major yep. radio stations. And everyone was like, this is what's taking the place of grunge, <laughs> which is, which is kind of hilarious when you think about it. Oh, it's by the way. Um, I, I, I should keep, should I keep a lid on any F-bombs or anything like that? I don't know. Nope. Uh, nope. This is a family show or weapons, not. Okay, weapons good. free, my man. Okay, awesome. Great. Because I, I, I find that- I don't want my... kids listening to this because I'm talking about alcohol and, <laughs> good, and good. what it's like to be a parent. So I don't want kids yeah. knowing the secret sauce. Right. Yeah, no. Fuck them. Like, <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> so- uh, well done. So sir. me and Alicia, yeah, yeah. There you go. That's the uh, kids. Go fuck yourselves. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, so Alicia and I were in Francisco Torres together, and then maybe like two floors above me, I heard that there were two roommates. One guy played um, sax, and his roommate played trumpet. So. I introduced myself to them. I was like, Hey, do you guys want to start a band? And they were like, absolutely. You know, and they were like, you know, the saxophone player was like into the specials and shit like that. So, um, the four of us, and then there was a guy named Marcus on my floor. This dude was fucking hilarious. He, he was from Venice beach, California. And, um, he's like one of these wheelers and dealers always had some sort of like, you know, get rich quick scheme. And he said he played bass. I didn't really know how honest he was about it or not, but originally he was our bass player. And then I, I, I quickly learned that like, nah, he doesn't. <laughs> so, so, um, I, I met this other dude. I was working at the gap, like everybody does, um, at some point in their lives and, uh, met this guy named Layton who played bass and him and I were chatting in, in the gap folding, you know, I don't know, the puffy coats or something like that. And, uh, he says to me, he's like, yeah, I, I learned, I learned how to play bass by listening to the operation Ivy album. And I was like, okay, this guy knows exactly like wow. the world that I'm thinking about. Yeah. He's, he's like, yeah, a friend of mine told me like, if you ever want to learn to play good punk bass, listen to uh, the operation Ivy album. Still to this day, that album holds up. But if you haven't listened to it in a while, check it out. Hmm. Um, so him and I started like kind of putting down the basic 
you know, uh, ideas of the tracks. And then we bring Jeff and Aaron in to write the horn parts and Alicia would, Alicia would be there to help, you know, kind of orchestrate. So it just kind of came together. We never really had any sort of like auditions per se. And then the drummer, I forget, I think you remember, um, Dave Wagner. Yes. He was like a, yeah, it was like a year over year, year, year or two older than us. Yep. His younger brother played drums. And so he heard that I was thinking about putting together a band and he had me, he introduced me to his younger brother. And that essentially was like, that was the, that then became the original six members of the band. And then the other band I put together was this thing. This was like the predecessor to the band I'm in now. And it was just a, a recreation of a band that I created as an onstage band for um, a musical that my wife wrote. So she wrote, she wrote this musical, this uh, was called Devil in the Hole. We called it the, uh, it was an aerial country rock music spectacular because um, she does uh, aerial silks. You know, that stuff you see in Cirque du Soleil and things like that. Um, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's been doing it since, uh, two, I want to say, 2011 or so. So she wrote this show for this awesome space out in Brooklyn called The House of Yes. And um, they're in a, they're, they're like this huge nightclub now. I mean, I, I don't think anybody's going there now because of COVID times. But before the pandemic, they were like one of the premier spots out in Bushwick to go to in Brooklyn. Um, before they were in that space, they were on this like meat packing, this like street with a bunch of meat packing plants. And like, you know, you go there at the end of the night or at the end of the day and like all the meat packing places were like washing all the like, you know, beef juice off yeah, from the street. Yeah. Meat packing was this, always like, known for music. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, the, yeah. I mean, you have, you get like the, the meatpacking district in New York as well, but then out in Bushwick was this place, the house of yes. And so we, we presented this show there and created a band for the show. And then we had all this music. So we were just like, all right, what the hell let's, let's play this music out in New York. So we just, you know, built that band with people who had, had taken part in the shows. So again, no real auditions on our, on our end. So it wasn't necessarily like a traditional sort of like, you know, creation of bands in the sense that I've heard. And then the Fremonts, which is my current, sorry, the Fremonts, uh, the, uh, the, the current band, it's just my wife and I, we just realized that like, we really needed to be doing something creative. And we were like, all right, let's play music together. Right, that, <laughs> that was, was it. Uh, no, I mean, that's, that's kind of where I wanted to get to. Cause you were talking about doing festivals. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, you, you know, the, uh, the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, um, yep. it's, it's this, you know, it's this huge, international festival where a bunch of like small shows from around the world and small companies from around the world come and like, you know, thousands of people to descend upon the town of Edinburgh in Scotland and thousands of people and thousands of shows even. I mean, there's like, you know, I had to comb through like a thousand plus venues to try to find the venue that was perfect for our show. But we had, Steph and I wrote a show um, for our band that is just the two of us over the last, we wrote it in 2019. And um, the guy who produced it, uh, we just had a chat with him after we produced it in Boulder, Colorado. And we're like, well, let's try to take it to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And we were supposed to go last summer, but again, COVID hit. And uh, that got put off until um, 2021, hopefully. I mean, as of right now, the festival is still slated to be on and they're holding our slot, but we'll see if it ends up happening or not. Yeah, I mean, that's when everybody's plans got canceled. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. I sure I'm glad I don't rely on, I, I really feel for all the people who rely on music or performing of any sort as their sole base of income right now. Cause it's a harsh, harsh world for them right now. 
you know, there, there are some theories that say that this is just an accelerant of things that were already going to happen, but I think the performing space is thousands of years old. So it's not likely that that's going to go away, but it's seriously doing some damage specifically to the theater industry, but in performances in general. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's going to force people to really rethink how we do it. Right. You think of these Broadway theaters where, you know, you're sitting in a chair that is like too small for, you know, like someone who's, five foot and 120 pounds, you know, you're like crammed elbow to elbow with all these people in these huge theaters like that, that kind of thing can't necessarily happen anymore, or at least they're going to have to rethink how they do it. Jonesy was talking about it a little differently uh, because he does commercial stuff. So what he was saying is the commercial sets completely shut down because it's all inside. There's stale air. It doesn't recirculate very well. uh, And they just can't bring everybody into that space all at once. Yeah. Uh, so that's going to change things as well. Oh yeah. I, I, I see that. I see that. I mean, you know, we've got a, a, we got a buddy of ours, you know, Gustafson has been, you know, screenwriting out there. And like, he was telling me that, you know, progress with his script was at the start of the start of the pandemic. Like he had really like picked up some steam and then, you know, all of Hollywood shut down. And just recently, you know, they started, it started getting some momentum back up into it. Cause they're trying to figure out how, if they're going to produce any films, how they're going to do it in the future. I can't even imagine, man. I can't even imagine. And I guess, you know, as far as musicians go, I mean, you see people trying and we've even tried to, you know, doing these uh, live streams and things like that, you know, that are all completely reliant on, you know, good Wi-Fi connections. And do you have the equipment at home? And a lot of people out there are writing blogs and, and with really great instructions on how to live stream from home. And people are figuring out how to do it pretty well, which is which is nice and fantastic. Um, you just kind of have to have that sort of uh I don't know that patience to figure out the technology of it. Right. You know, I mean, we, we, did, we've put up maybe like three or four performances online. We tried a couple of live streams and then just got fed up by the fact that like the quality of what we were putting out was largely dependent upon whether or not our Wi-Fi or ethernet was wanted to cooperate with us. Right. Which just stunk. Cause you know, uh, my wife and I, we, we, I mean, we rehearse every day. We've, I don't think there's, I mean, I can't count on one hand the amount of the days that we've missed rehearsal during the pandemic. Granted, it's easy because it's just the two of us. So we just go up, we go up into our spare room and we can rehearse. But still, I mean, you'd think we get tired of playing the same songs over and over and over again. But like, if you let them sit, they're going to get old. It's like, you know, when you stop going to the gym, you're going to get flabby, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You got to keep moving forward. Yeah, totally. No, it it changes things around. So you're your sound engineer has a completely new world to explore. Your lighting engineer probably has to start thinking about being closer to the camera, but the whole concept of distribution over the web brings in uh, networking and IP addresses and all that. And I can't imagine the, you got to have what level of bandwidth going out just if you're going to broadcast, but then you've also got to rely on a certain amount of bandwidth coming in. It's not as predictable or reliable as television. So that, Yeah. yeah, completely different world. Yeah. And then even when you do like a live stream or if you do like a Facebook live thing, you know, we did one of those and there is a really cool aspect in that you can like, people can comment live while you're performing and you can sort of like respond to the comments live, but there's like a 10 minute five, no, not 10 minutes. Sorry. Like a 10 to 30 second lag, you know? So it, it, it it's, it's weird. I don't know. It, it, it never felt quite comfortable to us. I'm sure other there, I know, I know for a fact that there are plenty of people out there who have like got it down pat. Like there's this, uh, 
there's this drag queen that I'm a huge fan of and she has just figured out how to do the lives, the Facebook live streams. Like every Tuesday she's on and like responding to all the comments, like a pro and, and I like, I'm in awe of how well she does it. But like, we just couldn't, we just didn't have the the patience or the attention to figure out how to do it. So we just ended up recording before and then premiering it on YouTube. And then just when you do it that way, what we can do is we can enter into the chat room and just kind of like, you know, shoot the shit with all the people who are watching the show, which is yeah. kind of nice. And there's just as many facets of webcam work for a white collar worker as there is for a performer. I've, you've mm. got lighting, you've got, uh, you've got stage makeup if you want to look at it from a certain element, but there's all kinds of cinematography work that probably gets taken for granted in terms of framing and perspective. Um, if you're not taking up the entirety of the frame with your face, people are looking behind you. Yeah, what, set dressing, right? Yeah. yeah. Like what what books do you have on the bookshelf? What, uh-huh. what the, fuck, the fuck color of paint is that? You know, what mm-hmm. why would you choose that rug? There's um there's all kinds of opportunities for people now in the work from home space to try and figure out how best to frame themselves in a way that says things about them, or on the opposite side, what is it that you want to hide from people? I did see something April Mayish. Uh, maybe as late as June, but it was like good morning America. Like it was a prime time morning show. We're talking millions of viewers. And uh, the guy that was on the show, you could probably find it on YouTube. He had a nice suit on. We're talking tie. Somebody did his makeup. His hair was coiffed. Like dude looked good. And you could tell yeah. he was sitting down because his posture was kind of slouched, but he didn't have a desk to hide behind. So <laughs> at some point the camera kind of slowly panned down and you say he wasn't wearing any pants. <laughs> And you think to yourself, all right, I can kind of relate. I can kind of relate. Like nobody wants well, to go back to wearing pants if you don't have no. to. But at that point, like, you know, the camera's watching, you know, yeah. you're moving and you're naked, but like, that's, it's you and the camera, man. There's no middleman here. There's no, there's no barrier. There's no desk. Well, I, I mean, some people just don't think about this shit, right? No, no, they I mean, don't. Like, so, <laughs> like you said, it opens up a massive opportunity who pe- for people who do think of this stuff. You know, I'll you pay me like a certain amount of dollars for an hour. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to meet you on Zoom. I'm going to look at your setup and I'm going to tell you what you can do to look a hell of a lot more professional. Right? Absolutely. hundred percent. It's like those sort of things totally make a difference. You know, my, uh, my, my wife is a, is a, is a professional um, coach. Right. So she coaches, she's an executive coach. Right. So basically that my, my elevator pitch of, of explaining to people what exactly that is, is like, she like reminds business people how to be human. Right. (laughs) So it's like a therapist for business people. Absolutely. Um, But we spent the last like, you know, three months figuring out the best, most professional looking frame for her zoom calls because it matters. Mm -hmm. And like, we finally hit on it this past week. And over the last, like over the last week, every single person who she's, she's met with has like made a comment on how good the room she's in looks, Yep, you know? I mean, if you follow, you got to follow Leslie Jones on Twitter because she, she's freaking brilliant. All she does is like points her phone at the TV and she's watching news and she'll comment on people's living rooms and offices and shit to be like, Oh, look at that bookcase. Like <laughs> it's, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. You know, you, you wonder if they actually put the time in to do that level of management. And I think it matters. So zoom. Coach, oh yeah. 
You know, the last time yeah. we had the whole gang together wasn't for the best set of circumstances, but that would have been one of the things that I would have brought up is who's going to be a Zoom coach because we all have the talent and the experience and there are millions of potential customers out there. Oh, yeah. No you, 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 you market yourself, right? I mean, in the way that this pandemic has has that has changed things, I mean, it's how easy is it to like now create your own website to, you know, learn what you, the, the little basic things you need to learn to put together an audio studio. I mean, shit, like, like, like we started talking about, I turned my closet into this booth that I'm talking to you in right now. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I have a voiceover agent in New York city and I, I submit like, you know, anywhere between five to 10 auditions a week. I've recorded work from the studio and it works just fine. You know, like, I mean, shit, I did work for, um, for, uh, uh, television shows on ABC and recorded the entire thing for my closet. I didn't have to go into a professional studio to do it. You know, like the possibilities with, you know, better internet and better technology are, are seemingly endless. Right. Yeah. yeah. I'm looking into doing that too. I got a voices.com profile and, yep. uh, I got to figure out how to get into it. Cause it takes time. You got to sit down, you got to record demos. You got to figure out what copy yeah. you want to read. Uh, are you getting into accents or anything like that? Or are you just doing straight you know, voice. it's funny. So I just started brushing them all off. Um, sure. Good old David Allen Stern. You remember, you remember his shit? I do. <laughs> Acting with an accent, Dr. David Allen Stern. You know, like, <laughs> uh, oh man. Uh, so yeah, I, I, ju I just yesterday I got, I, I just um, finished brushing up. Uh, I'm going to try to brush up one a week just to get that going on because I've been doing a lot of, um, you know, auditions for like Cartoon Network shows and um, uh, Netflix cartoons and all that kind of junk. And, you know, they're all, it's all character work. And, you know, I've had two or three come across my way that needed an accent. I'm like, shit, I'm not prepared for this. So I needed yeah. to start dusting those things off, you know, because especially for the cartoons, the characters, the character work really matters. Yeah. We learned from our voice coach. We learned, we learned the American journalistic method of English. It was bringing right. the voice really close to your teeth. It's and not and. Yeah. And he, yeah. And he you know, ladder and he brought all <laughs> of these nice kind of proper methods of uh, Webster's American dictionary English and you hear it in other areas and you kind of, I, I like it. I like hearing, I like hearing that. So I'm out in Phoenix now and you think Phoenix doesn't have much to speak of. There's not a big Native American influence out here, although there's yeah. a ton of reservations around. But the one that I catch the most is the Midwest. That's understandable. I mean, you're right down there at the bottom of the corridor, right? Yep. Yep. So it's, yeah. you, you're thinking Dakotas, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, a little bit of Illinois, and they're all snowbirds. They come down here. Yeah. Uh, to avoid the snow. But you'll hear them you'll hear them on the radio. Cause again, we're talking about voiceover works. So you start paying close attention to what they're saying on the radio mm. and uh, you know, come on down this weekend and ask, uh, ask us for a special <laughs> rate on a new car. And you're like, what? <laughs> where are you coming from? <laughs> and that's kind of, uh, you know, as a, as a person that studies language as we did, you can pick it out and you can really appreciate it, but that's kind of the, that's the fun of getting into voiceover as you go back to all that. Yeah. I found all those mouth diagrams and I was trying to explain it to a guy from Liverpool. So one, he's from Liverpool, but two, he's from Liverpool via Brunei. Jesus. And he's, uh, he's got a very, the people from the Commonwealth seem to have a much better 
English accent than the people in England. It's, <laughs> he's got a very crisp British accent. And every time I'd see him, he would say, can you please do another voice for me? Was, <laughs> All right, well, what country are you picking this time? And we would have fun with it. And he'd just sit there and shake his head at me and go, what is it exactly? Is it television? It's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of... It's kind of TV. It's, and then I broke into the stuff that we used to do with Morgan where, you know, it's, it's under the tongue. It's in the back of the palate. It's over here. It's over there. It's what you do with your teeth. And he's just sitting there shaking his head at me. And I thought, you know, most people don't really think about where sound comes from. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, you know, it's, I, I went on to work with uh, Kristen Linkletter in grad school. Oh yeah. You and, did big school. Yeah. Well, she, she taught, our guy in UCSB, you know, like he was one of her teachers. Oh, you stepped up. Yeah. 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 And, and she very, very sadly, she passed away back in uh, June, um, which was a big loss for the, for the theater world. I mean, not just the theater world, but I mean, shoot, there are teachers of hers. We have friends of ours who work with the, uh, the world economic forum, you know, and work with these people who work in business with ink letter technique to help them, you know, talk better and speak more, you know, and my wife just went through a three day, eight hour a day link letter intensive because, you know, like people don't concentrate that much on like how the body makes the voice. Right. Yeah. And there is just so 100%. much to, to think about it. I mean, even with like Steph and I, uh, we went back to voice lessons. Uh, we went on a little DIY tour in 2017. We played like 40 shows in three months came back home. We were like, all right, cool. That's some experience. We need to get better. Right. So we started taking voice lessons with this woman who's fantastic. Her name is Donna Wickham. And she runs out of, uh, out of, out of, uh, Denver and even her like telling us where we need to place certain aspects of our voice. Like if we need to focus in, uh, up underneath our nose, do we need to put it back up back further in, uh, in our throat, when you bring it down to our, our chest voice, like where, and, and you have to like modulate between these different areas, whether or not it's top of your head or up in the front of your face or down mm. in your chest, all within, I mean, you could go to different areas of, of, of your, what are they called? What different areas of your body in one line of a song, you know, yeah. Yeah. and it gets really, really technical. Right. I mean, I, I don't there, I'm sure there are people out there who are just like, naturally fantastically gifted singers who don't have to think about it. Right. I'm not one of those people. Like I'm, I need to get, I need the technique in to be able to like produce a good sound, you know? And when I'm not thinking about it, I'm not singing as well as I am, you know? Um, so it's like, but it's a double-edged sword, right? Cause then if you think about it too much, then all of a sudden you're up in your head and you're not really doing it well. Well, even the ones that kind of improvise, they did the work beforehand. So you do the work now or you do the work later, but you got to do the work. Yeah. You got to get it into your lizard brain and then forget it. Yeah. What what does the road do to your voice? Um, I don't know. I mean, it's weird. I'll tell you what sucks is uh, it was during the summer and, um, air conditioning in the car really does not treat your voice very well, (laughs) but, but when it, I mean, when you're driving through, you know, like 90 upper nineties, lower hundreds heat, you want air conditioning in your car, you mm-hmm. know, plus you got all your instruments in there. And the last thing we need is any of our instruments to get overheated while we're traveling. So air conditioning was constantly on, you know, so we drive, you know, six, eight, 10 hours, get to where we were going to go. And we were pretty careful with our planning. We would, you know, get to a place and make sure that like, we didn't, 
we very rarely had to play a show after we had been traveling in the car for a very long time. Right. Mm-hmm. We would, we would get to a place, stay there overnight and then play the next day. Um, but that being said, man, that air conditioner, at least for me, that air conditioner was a bitch. Like it would just dry, dry your throat out. So dry my throat out so much. Um, I mean, and God bless my wife. I was, I was complaining all the time about it. I'm sure she got sick of me after a while. Um, well, you got the hotel room too. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, and then, then also like, you know, we had a rule, no talking in the car. Um, <laughs> How'd you pull that one off? <laughs> <laughs> lot, lot, lots of podcasts, uh, lots of folks <laughs> listen, really awesome recorded books. You know, um, it was a lot easier for, for Steph, uh, less easy for me because mm. I'm, I'm a chatty Kathy. Uh, but, uh, yeah, no, so no talking in the car. Um, but I mean, we had a really good time to be honest. I mean, it was kind of fun. Like we tried our best not to go ape shit after the shows, but every now and then you would just want to hang with the bands that we were playing with. Oh yeah. We'd stay up till like two, three in the morning, you know, drinking, have a really good time and then wake up the next day feeling like shit and have to get on the road and then drive to the next location. And granted, like we are small beans, right? We're not a, we are not like, I'm not famous by any stretch of the imagination. I think Spotify reminds me how not famous I am every month by telling me like, you had 17 listeners last month. And I'm like, yeah, you know, like, <laughs> like I, it's, it's like an advanced hobby, you know, this is why I have a day job so I can do the advanced hobby shit. Um, but, uh, so we were playing at a lot of small, like coffee shops and, you know, small, small venues here and there. Um, but, uh, 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 you know, we would set up these shows, uh, Steph had a really good idea of booking local bands that what she did is she went and she researched the towns we were going to found bands that had like a similar number of likes on Facebook that we did mm-hmm. reached out to them said, Hey, we want to book a show around this time. Are you down? Here's a link to our music. Then they'd get back to us and say, sure. Or they wouldn't get back to us at all. And then we would reach out to a venue that we thought might be good for us and be like, Hey, we have this lineup of local bands. Can we book this night? And so that's how we ended up booking. Like, like I said, like 40, 40 some odd shows. Um, So you did most of the work. We did all the work. We, we have 100% of the work. It was all us. We booked it. We advertised for it. No, 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 no. We again, seventeen listeners on Spotify. We yeah, we, have, agents, we have no representation. Want to cut. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it ain't gonna make shit. Like <laughs> we, I'll we give you fifty percent commission. Fifty percent yeah, zero is zero. Yeah, exactly. It's like what well, our take. Our take from each show is paying for gas, slices of turkey, and carrots because that's yeah. all we're eating on the road. You know, uh, <laughs> a slave to the craft. Yeah. Yeah, but it was fun. I mean, I I wouldn't take it take a minute of it back. We had a we had a hell of a great time. We met a lot of great talented bands. Went to a lot of areas of the country that I've never been to before. I think we we mainly toured through the Midwest and the East Coast. I think we got a little bit south. We got to we got to Nashville. We spent a week in Nashville. That was a lot of fun. Um but uh I mean it was it was just us, just the two of us. We packed all of our band shit into a Honda CRV and drove ten thousand miles, you know. So it was like the most unglamorous tour as far as tours can go, you know. Well, half of that enjoyment but, is getting from place to place, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was great. And the people that you meet are just fantastic. Because you're just I mean, you're just meeting people who are just I mean, they're they're also like I mean, I'm sure some of them had some of these people were like trying to, I don't know, I'm using air quotes here, like make it in the industry. Right. But a lot of people were just trying to write good songs and perform them well, you know, and 
they were really swell people to hang out with mm-hmm. uh, after the show. There is something to be said for live performance. And we, we were, we were the ones in front of the lights for the most part, but to actually be in the audience, there's an energy to it uh, that I think is really irreplaceable. So it was good that you got out there and it was good that you gave people an option to kind of sample your art. Yeah. Uh, I kind of, I've always thought like, for, like I'm, I'm not a religious person. I don't, I would never claim to be, I'm barely spiritual, you know, ba- very barely. <laughs> but like, I feel like going to a good live music show for me is like going to church, you know, mm-hmm. like we saw back in, I think it was 2010 or something like that. We went and saw, um, arcade fire at Madison square garden. And we had floor seats and it was right after the suburbs came out and Uh they sold Madison square garden out two nights in a row. It was fantastic. It was like, it was a big deal because they were like still being considered an indie band. Right. Mm -hmm. And they just like blew Madison square garden out of the fucking water. It was incredible. And here we were on the floor and you look around you and like everyone is singing along at the top of their lungs. And like, there's just nothing like that, man. There's no, there's no instant connection like that to thousands of other people that you don't know, at least that I've experienced in my life. You know, uh, it's fantastic. You know, it's a fantastic thing. And I think that like, as a performer, you know, you get a chance to, uh, depending on like what type of writing you do, like you get a chance to share a piece of yourself with the people who have, um, decided to give you their time. Right. Mm. I mean, I, I always, mm. there's always this thing that I think that I definitely didn't, I, I by no means came up with this idea. So I don't want to claim that it's mine, but like, I've always thought that the audience has, has made an agreement, right? They've agreed to come and give you like an hour, an hour and a half of their time. Right. Mm-hmm. And they could be doing, like, I think it was Gustafson who said this to me one day before we were doing a show. They could be doing anything with that hour and a half. They could be home with their kids. They could be making love to their significant other. They could be, you know, spending time with their family. They could be doing something that gave them joy, but they have given you that hour and a half. So as a performer, like, it is your responsibility to make sure that they are not wasting that time. 100%. Right. Yep. So, you know, uh, yeah. And I, and I, and I, I would like to think that that kind of informs Steph and I with the type of content that we write, you know, like we're not, we're not doing, we've never been, our, our songs are not, you know, uh, they're, 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 they're pretty autobiographical for the most part. We go deep into some demons with a lot of our stuff. Like the show mm-hmm. that we're taking to Edinburgh is all about, uh, you know, some, some very serious, like mental illness problems that came into our relationship and how our marriage almost, you know, ended a couple of times, like the the show's called the failure cabaret, you know? So like, we've always kind of like put it all out there. And there are a lot of really good artists out there who, who do that. And, And then sometimes it gets a little bit into, I'm sure I'm sure someone could listen to our music and be like, Whoa, you're giving us a little bit too much information. You know, I, I hope not. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that feeling of not wanting to like, just like give people bubble gum is what drives, drives our, our creative process. I think that's wonderful. I, there are so many opportunities for people to try and find some kind of, uh, catharsis or some levity, you know, if they want to laugh, there's stand up comedy. If they want to cry, there's, you know, soap operas and drama, but if they want to feel there's something about music, I think that's specific to that 
particular medium. Um, yeah. You're not looking at it. So it's not capturing you. Uh, and it's a little bit more involved than a book. So it kind of gives you that halfway medium between allowing somebody else to tell their story and allowing you to kind of make it up as you go. There's, there's an opportunity for, I, I, I hear what you're saying. And I, I, I commend you on that. I congratulate you for doing that because if you have an opportunity to share what's going on in your life, there's absolutely somebody else going through that. And yeah. you could be the one thing that brightens their day, even with a sad song. Sure. Sure. Well, you know, I, I think one thing that, that, that another thing I love so much about music is like a song can mean one thing to one person and then mean something completely different to mm. another person. Mm -hmm. And both of those things could be completely different than what the songwriter originally wrote the song about, mm -hmm. you know, like it, the, mm -hmm. the interpretation is like so wide. Like you have so much room for interpretation with, with, with music. I think it's participatory. Yeah. I agree a hundred percent. Uh, yeah, so there, totally. there's, a, there's one type of kind of audience environment where everybody's jazzed on the same thing. I remember when the Star Wars prequels came out and it was down <laughs> on, uh, I think it was Robinson Theater or something. What was the big theater downtown? Uh, the Arlington. Arlington. Uh, yeah. So the, Ar the Arlington had these gigantic release nights and all of the nerds came out and we went oh, driving dude. down State Street by the Arlington yes. and we just saw them. Like, where are these people in our program, man? These people got costume chops. Like, some of this oh. shit is articulate. It's in there. Right? Oh. And Dude, then you got in there. Uh, I think I went on the third night after, like, the Phantom Menace opened. I didn't catch opening night, but I made night number three when that wave was still going. Mm -hmm. And you could feel an energy in that room. You know, there's no interaction with the performers. There's no, there's no truth. You know, you're looking at a screen. But yeah. the energy in the audience kind of speaks to that versus the type of stuff that you're talking about where you're going to have an interaction with the audience where there's kind of a give and take. So there, there's two different types of audience experiences. And the Star Wars one was phenomenal. I don't think it has anywhere near the kind of interaction that you would have even at a, even at a coffee shop if you've got some kind of live performance where there's interaction, mm -hmm. um, that's just an energy that you can't get anywhere else. I think it's, I think it's great. Yeah. You hit it right on the head. I mean, I think it, there's the, there's that give and take, take thing, right. Yeah. Oh, Oh, 100%. Like you can tell when a performer is just phoning it in, you know, and it all as for me as an audience member, if I, if I'm in front of someone who's phoning it in, it makes me mad. I get, I get pissed. I'm like, dude, I spent how much on this ticket, right? I spent how much on this ticket and you like, and I showed up and I gave you my time. Yeah. Now, granted, I don't know if that person's having a bad day, you know, like a part of me wants to be like, dude, suck it up, man. You got people who are relying on you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like you got You got You got to show up to the table. You touched on it before. It's kind of a, it's kind of an agreement. So an agreement requires two willing parties because you know what happens when you got a shitty house. <laughs> uh, I was listening yeah. to, I was listening to Chris Hardwick talk about it. He was like, yeah, you know, some nights just, you know, some nights it is the audience. He's like, some, I, there's nights that I bomb. He says, but there's also some nights at the audience. Like I want to go out and I want to say to him, look, if you guys, if all of you guys ever get a chance to be together again, don't. There 
needs to be a, you know, we're here to watch you. You're here to perform. Each of yeah. us is going to do our job as part of this agreement. And you get to spend a nice, you know, hour, 90 minutes with that kind of, that kind of moment. Yeah. Well, and as an audience member, how great is it when you're surprised? Oh yeah. You know, when, when like, whether it's a, whether it's a, whether it's a band or whether you've, you know, you've been dragged to some theater show that you didn't, that you didn't really want to go, but your friend was like, Oh, I got to go see this thing. And you're like, all right, I'll come and go see it. And then it turns out to be fucking fantastic. You know, I love it when you're surprised, like, and those things, those things stick with you, you know, that's the benefit of live performance. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not to say like, to your point, not to say that like going to those big movies on opening night are not like exciting as hell. You know, like I saw at the Arlington, we went and saw the first Lord of the Rings movie on opening night. And it was Mm -hmm. like a thing, Mm -hmm. a thing, which is kind of like, it's a little bit like I, you know, that you remember that whole thing. Like I I could do this back in like my teens and my twenties because I didn't give a shit, but like staying up until like midnight and you'd see like the midnight show of the big shows, Mm -hmm. you know, like we did this in New York city all the time when when like, I remember we saw dark night uh, at like one in the morning, uh, uh, when it opened, you know, and it was awesome. Awesome. I, I I'm too old to do that now. Like, like <laughs> a, I'm too old and B if I ever went home to my wife and be, and I was like, Hey, so I'm going to stay up until uh, one o'clock to catch the one o'clock of this new wonder woman movie. She'd look at me and she'd be like, are you fucking kidding me? No, you're not. I'm like, you're right. It's a dumb idea. Cause it's like, no, I can't do that anymore. But that being said, like that experience was so much fun. And I thought about it yesterday. Did you see the news that came out from Warner Brothers? Yes. Yeah. And I'm wondering how that's going to affect things because they're saying, you know, this is only the pandemic. It's like, no, man, once you let the genie out of the bottle, that shit's never going back in. Totally. Now, the old man part of me is like, oh, thank God. Because, <laughs> like, I have gotten, I hate going to movie theaters now. I, I'm like, so I'm so loud. old man about it. I'm like, oh God, who sat in this chair before me? What do you mean I got to spend $20 on a bug and a popcorn? This is ridiculous. I Why are my shoes sticking day. to the floor? Uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and like, not to mention like not to go dark, but then all of a sudden, like if you get really paranoid about it, you're like, who's coming in the movie theater? Do they have a gun? Oh my God. Oh my God. Like it's, it's like fucking awful. You know, you like the world has almost yeah. the world and, 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 <laughs> Capitalism and blah 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 has made that the man over there on- is jerking off. Yeah, exactly. Like you don't know if yeah, you, completely. <laughs> so like, part of me saw the news and I was like, oh fuck yeah, man! Opening night, I got or I got a month to watch this online before it goes away for a while. That's great. Yeah, I think that's um, nice. But I, I'm sure that like you know, for the industry and for the people who make the movies and how they make their money and all that kind of stuff. I'm sure that that's a devastating blow. You're right. Cause once you let that genie out of the bottle, then people are just going to be figuring out how to monetize it, how to, how to continue that going forward. Right. Yeah. But it, it may elevate the theater experience because now you have people going to the theater because they want to. Mm-hmm. So it, it may yeah. change. Right? Yeah. Like I, yeah, exactly. Who knows? Who knows? I mean, who, who knows how any of the shit that is going to change yeah. from as a result of this pandemic is yeah. going to shake out, you know? I, I like the idea of kind of community because you're sitting next to strangers, but you know that they're strangers that have a common interest. So at some point you are a little tribal with it. Uh, we used to go watch the Rocky Horror Picture Show. At, oh yeah. Uh, NIV. And there was always a little mini stage performance, you know, where there was somebody that was interacting with the screen and we'd seen the movie, we'd seen the movie 
you know, dozens, if not hundreds of times, but there was always a charm. I think Greg did it one year. Um, yeah. There was, oh, there dude, was a charm uh, to it. I remember it when I was a teenager, me and all the, the, you know, the community theater kids that I, that I grew up with, we would go, you'd go and dress up and like everyone knew the dances, you know, and like whenever, whenever like someone said, I think it was like, wow, with the line, someone says like, great Scott. And everyone throws the toilet paper at the screen, yeah. you know, <laughs> and like, oh man, everyone's doing the time warp in the, in the aisles of the movie. Like oh, yeah. it was, it was a thing, man. It was yeah. a thing. Like, but so that, yeah, totally. I totally, I totally are, get behind that. Those are elements of the surprises that I think you were talking about. Like, I remember, I remember going to see you one time in IV and I was there to support <laughs> my friend. It's like, I, I, yeah. I, I dig Scott, but I'm going to see my man. Right. Um, you know, and I'd wave from the audience and, you know, it's like, Hey, all right. And, and then you kind of went back and did your thing. And then um, you opened with the, the Zelda theme. <laughs> and that to me, my head exploded. Uh, and you know, the crowd was into it. It was a great opener. You warmed up the crowd, you got them all excited. And then you kind of busted into your catalog after that. But there was, I didn't, I had no concept that that's what you were going to get into. I thought you're going to play your hits. You're going to play Ivy Gurley and, you know, and, and all that. But then, uh, you know, the horn section came in uh, and you just kind of had this sly smile in your face. Like I got something for you. <laughs> uh, yeah, hundred percent. The the experience of live performance when there is a surprise, and then if you go see two live performances, you're never going to get the same performance twice. No, 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 not at all. You know, especially like the same artist is different from night to night, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah, very we, we, few artists that I'll go to see a second time. Um, very few artists that I'll go to see a second time just because you want to, you want to keep that lightning in a bottle, especially if it was a great performance, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And you want to remember it. Uh, yeah. The power of memory as opposed to, you know, what you can see in a recording, but you know, we would do double headers on Sundays. Uh -huh. Those two performances are different. Yeah. Oh, and you geez. always seem to want to give it, at least this was my perspective. You always wanted to give a little bit more on the second performance because you knew you had to keep some in the tank on the first one, knowing that the double header was coming. Yeah, man. So I did, you know, I did, I had one, when I was still trying to be a stage actor, I had, I had one short stint on Broadway and um, we did, you know, the, that eight show a week schedule is, is brutal. It's oh, yeah. fucking brutal, man. And you have two, two days out of that week, you're doing two, the Wednesday and your Saturdays when you're doing your two, your two shows on the, uh, a day. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think you got maybe a couple hours in between, you know, like the first shows at like two, it's two and a half hour show. The next shows at seven. So you've got that time, a little bit of time to like recoup and then get lunch. And then all of a sudden you're back into the prep for the next show, you know? Yeah. Um, and I, everyone goes about it differently. Right. I mean, there are some people like the things I learned about, Broadway people doing that show were uh, both informative and frustrating, you know, because people run the gamut, right? Mm -hmm. Cause they still like, you know, you'd have people, they still give you notes, you know, the, you know, the assistant stage manager's job, they're there to give notes to like, especially us in the chorus, you know, because once a show is set, it is, it, it's a machine, right? There's mm -hmm. no real room to go outside the bounds of what has been set up. Yep. 
right? There was a weekend that, so I, I understudied for one of the leads in the show, right? And he went uh, on vacation one weekend. And so they, they, they dropped me in and I, I had a, I, I did three shows. I sat in for three shows uh, for him. And um, on, after the first night, the stage manager came out to me and she's like, Hey, so you're playing this role too smart. You need to do it more like the usual guy does it. And I was like, Oh fuck. Like you have to fit into a mold, right? Mm -hmm. There's not that much, at least in this, at least in this experience for me, there was no room for me to put my own stamp on it because this was a product that I was being put in to serve, right? The product didn't serve me. I served the product. You're the cog in the wheel. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So they would still give notes and you'd have some people who would like, and you'd come up to your dressing, your dressing room station at the end of the night. And there'd be a little stack of index cards. If you had notes and you had some people who just pick up those stacks, stack index cards, not look at them, tear them up and throw it into the trash can. Right. (laughs) And I would always look at them and be like, are you fucking kidding me, dude? Come on, man. Like uh, you think you're just like God's gift. (laughs) First of all, we're in the chorus. So, uh, I mean, come on. Right. Uh, secondly, like it's kind of your job to do whatever the people in charge, uh, not, not do, but like, it's kind of your job to like keep up a certain level of quality. Right. And those notes are essentially quality control, right. Based on the director who's responsible for the house take. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Which then we get into the whole thing where like, especially on Broadway, people are spending anywhere from like $200 to now, like, I mean, thousands of dollars on a good ticket to whatever show you're going to see. So the quality control is up that much more. And I think that you should feel a responsibility to those people who forked over those ducats to come and see you perform, you know? And you're on Broadway where there's a lot of eyes on you and they might be important eyes. Yeah. 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 And that's, yeah. Well, yeah. So it's just like, I mean, yeah, it, it, sure. It gets a little monotonous from time to time. Right. Because, you know, you get into, you get into a, into a, a rhythm and, and you do your thing, you hit your marks and it can be very easy to go into autopilot. Um, but you got to find a way to shake that, you know, now granted I, I was only, we, uh, we closed like three months after our cast was put in. So we weren't in a very long, we were, we were the cast that killed the show. <laughs> so, uh, but I, I don't know what someone, you know, you hear of these people who like performed in Phantom of the Opera for 12,000 performances or some crazy shit like that. Right. And it's like, how do you feel at the end of your, your run like when you perform this role so many times, you could actually do it in your sleep. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how you reconcile something like that. I don't, I don't know how people deal with that. You know? Yeah. I mean, what do you move on to next? <laughs> right. Right. If anything at all. <laughs> I, I don't want to have too much sympathy for people on Broadway. Cause that's kind of the pinnacle of the craft. It's like, where do you go oh, from there? So, you know, no. you, you, yeah, yeah, you, yeah, reached yeah. It. you made it. Yeah. Uh, but I remember, I remember Jason Alexander, kind of lamenting about life after George. I was like, really? <laughs> I'll trade places with you. Uh, yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> like, Oh, you're doing, you're doing pretzel ads. A bummer. Yeah. You made a million well, dollars an episode as George. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. I mean, that's, you know, Steph and I talk about this all the time where, you know, it's, we had no anticipation that we, when we, when we moved away from New York, New York, Uh, we moved to Boulder, Colorado with the intention of kind of like cutting the acting cord. Like we weren't going to do it anymore. It's like, that's enough of that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and when this, this guy who at one point was Steph's boss, uh, he started asking us to have drinks with him cause he was bored and we really liked him. So we met him at one of the hotels downtown and we would have these really nice conversations with the dude for like an hour and a half a night, you know? And one day he was like, you know, we were talking to him about all the shows that Steph and I produced, you know, cause our last few years in New York, we produced a few shows and he was like, well, why don't you do this anymore? And we were like, well, you know, it's just not something we're really interested in doing. And he's like, ah, screw it. Write me a show. So we had, we had no, okay. we had no, yeah, we were like, all right, fine. Um, so that's, that was the the start of what then became the failure cabaret, you know, and we didn't know what we were going to talk. We didn't know what we were going to write about, you know? And I, I think I jokingly said to Chuck, I'm like, we could write a show about how uh, we've almost uh, gotten divorced a couple of times because of my behavior. And he's like, that's hilarious. Let's do that. So, you know, then we write this show about it. It has, you know, all, all, everything to do with, with that. Um, but anyway, the reason I bring this up is because we own that, right? So um, when, when, when I was on Broadway or when Steph was doing, you know, uh, she, she got cast in a ton. She has a resume full of like Shakespeare roles. You know, she did Ophelia. She did, she did uh, 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 Desdemona. She did Juliet. She did all, you know, all the age, pro, all, the, all the, all the ladies of Shakespeare. Her whole goal was to one day play all the ladies in Shakespeare. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but we didn't own those shows. And when the shows were over, all you had was a line on a resume that said, I did this once here. Right. And once that show is closed, it's not eternal. It's just a memory. It just kind of goes up into the ether. Right. And so when we started writing music together and then when we did this failure cabaret show, this is something that we own. Nobody else controls and we can decide when we don't want to do it anymore. You know, and it's more than just a line in a resume. It's like, oh, no, here, here's the footage from from the show that we did or here's the album that we recorded that is paired up with the show. Right. So I think that that's more interesting to me now is if I'm going to choose to spend my spare time outside of my day job doing something creative, I'm not going to go and do a community theater production of guys and dolls, Mm. you know, um, I'm sure it would be fun, but I'm much more interested in, in doing something that I took part in creating. Let's, uh, let's bring it home. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, what are you doing now? Uh, well now, you know, I'm just, uh, trying to stay sane. Um, we play music every day in our house and we're trying to figure out, I mean, like I said, you know, if at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival happens, we're going to go. And if there's a, like, if we're able to travel and there's a vaccine and, you know, all that goes well, uh, the summer of 2021, we're going to spend a month in Edinburgh, Scotland doing our show. Um, and then uh, outside of that, I'm sitting here talking to you. And you got a website for the band? Uh, I do. It's just the freemontsmusic.com. Um, you can check all of, all of our music's there. We're streamable on Apple Music and on Spotify. We're called the Fremonts. Awesome, brother. Hey, thanks cool. for coming on. I appreciate it. Hey, dude. Th- thanks for having me. It's been nice to catch up with you, man. This place is dead anyway, man.